0: Well, this evening we pick up a new study together in the book of Leviticus, the book of Exodus we finished last time, a book of redemption, and now we come to the next book in the Bible as we continue journeying verse by verse through God's Word to the book of Leviticus, and that title there at the beginning of this book, Leviticus, uh, that term actually comes, uh, we get it from the Latin Vulgate, and that word Leviticus from the Latin Vulgate basically is a term that simply means things that pertain to. To the Levites. That's why you see Leviticus. You almost see the word Levites in there. And remember, the the tribe of Levi or the Levites was basically the God-ordained tribe that were to be used by God as the ministers in the things of worship, in the tabernacle, ultimately in the temple when the permanent temple structure will be built. It's from the tribe of Levi then as well in a more specific sense that the priesthood would then come from through the particular family line remember Moses was a Levite as well as Aaron his brother but it was the family line of Aaron that were actually among the workers of the Levites they were all in a sense temple workers but particularly the family line of Aaron were to be the line of the priests uh, and ultimately the high priest as well so uh, as we get the book of leviticus here it basically is stuff that would be given to the levites particularly in one sense i guess you could almost say it's almost like an instruction manual for the priests and the people for that matter regarding how they were to worship god Uh, so again if you were almost to summarize what's the book of leviticus really about well it's an instruction manual given by god for the Levites, for the priests, and all the people of Israel that worship to give them an instruction from God regarding how God prescribes that he would be worshiped, how he would be approached, and how he would be worshipped in regards to those things. We'll see chapters 1 through 16 deal predominantly with the issue of how to approach God in worship, the different type of offerings and sacrifices, the burnt offering, the grain offering. We'll see the peace offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, and it will deal quite a bit. We'll see about the Day of Atonement that we know of, uh, Yom Kippur, and it will deal uh, tremendously about how a Worshipper is to approach God. How does a sinful person approach a holy God? On God's terms and in God's way. And then, chapter 17 through 27 will deal with how to walk before God in holiness. It almost kind of reminds me of a New Testament pattern. You know, there is our worship of the Lord, and then there is our walk with the Lord or before the Lord. And and before you become a worshiper of the Lord, uh, you really can't be an effective person who walks with the Lord. There must be the heart of worship first. You must come to know God in the way that God desires that he be known, and that is through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Once you meet Jesus and you approach God through his son, Jesus Christ, and you begin to worship God the way that he intends through his son, then you can begin a genuine walk with God and begin to understand how to walk with him. So 1 through 16, how to approach god in worship chapter 17 through 27 how to kind of walk before god in practical holiness and we'll see a lot of different things discussed there by way of maybe some themes that we'll see in the book of exodus certainly one of the predominant themes in the book of uh, excuse me the book of Leviticus one of the most predominant themes we'll see is holiness and the holiness of god in fact if you want to attach a verse to that you probably should put with that Leviticus 19 verse 2 where God speaks and says to the people, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And I think over some 90 plus times you'll see the term holiness show up in the book of Leviticus. It is a book that reveals the holiness of God, that he is unlike anything or anyone else. Again, we've talked about the word holy or holiness before. It just means to be separate to be set apart, that God is separate, there's no one and nothing like him. He's set apart, and in the same way, as we worship and walk with a holy God, uh, Peter ultimately picks up and quotes that in the New Testament, in his letter, and he says that we should seek to be holy, and he says, for God says, be holy, for I am holy, that we should seek to live set apart, unto God to live for him, uh, remembering that he is a holy God. So it will show greatly that God is a holy God and therefore uh, his holiness is not to be trifled with. Uh, We can't approach God in some trivial way, in some haphazard way, that he is a holy and a righteous God. And that's something to be reverenced and to be acknowledged. I think another theme or two that we see in the book of Leviticus is also the theme of worship, uh, and it is a book from an Old Testament perspective that we'll see deals a great deal about the worship of God and particularly how God prescribes that he be worshipped. And I think, man, what an important thing Jesus says in John chapter four that the father is seeking worshipers. And boy, if there is an area where I sense many times in my heart, when I look around the you know uh, atmosphere of the of the body of Christ and, and the church today it seems that a lot of times uh, as Christians even in the modern Christian culture there's a real zeal to want to work Christians love to work they love to go out and do works for God whether it's you know outreaches or whether it's just social activity because there's something about that and, and, and don't misunderstand what I'm saying here that's almost kind of self-gratifying self-rewarding and and we like to work we're a working people and certainly as a christian will work 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 okay well what what can we do to work and the reality is is god wants worship god wants worship and if we move away from worship in our lives, then our works can just become dead religious works. They have no meaning to them. They're from the wrong motivation. And, and, and God necessarily, in the word of God, doesn't seem to always, certainly he commands us to do good works. I understand that. That is the, the outflow of our Christian life. He has foreordained good works that we should walk in them. But fundamentally, the thing that God wants from you and from me more than anything is our worship, Is that we would be worshipers of God, that we would understand the value, the importance of worship, and I think in some ways put a higher priority on worship than what we often do. And I think there's something very fruitful and wonderful in a Christian life. I think there's something very special and wonderful when a a local church becomes a people who love to worship. And they just love to worship God and to adore God and to be in His presence and to spend time with Him and to be able to give Him the worship that He rightfully deserves. I mean, keep in mind, in the eternal dimension, guess what we're going to do a whole lot of? Worship. We're not going to be doing, hee ha right, amen, brother. My spirit bears witness. <laughs> That's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be worshiping forever and ever. And guess what? Nobody's going to be complaining. Oh, another song? We have to cast our crowns again, sing that song again. We already sang that song. Now, in an eternal glorified body, when the presence and the struggle of sin is removed from us, guess what we want to do? We want to worship. We realize we should worship and when we are in our glorified state and all the sinful inhibitions and problematic issues of our head and heart and our flesh are all taken away from us and you have a glorified, perfected, eternal body and you're in the presence of God, the thing that you're going to want to do is just worship and worship and worship and it's going to be satisfying and fulfilling and every time you look at the throne you're going to just want to worship and worship continuously and it's the the predominant thing that we see happening around the heavenly throne in the eternal realm i think one other theme we'll see in the book of leviticus and certainly tonight we will really emphasize that as we begin our study together is another theme is the issue of sacrifice And we'll see the different sacrifices that God required. And we think of sacrifice, certainly God is a God that deals in the realm of sacrifice and the shedding of blood. We'll see that it says in the book of Leviticus that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, sacrifice, there is no remission of sins. And sacrifice is something that God requires as a means to approach him on his terms. Again, why? Because we are unholy And God is holy. So because of that, these things are critical, that that God's primarily interested in our lives, listen, not just in making us happy. God's primary agenda in my life and in your life is to cause us to become more holy, through things like worship and sacrifice and approaching God on his terms and reverencing God as the holy God he is and walking in the fear of God, that we would be changed in our character, that we would be as Christians conformed into the image of Christ. The primary agenda, but the Bible tells us in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that we're to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a constant process. God's heart is that we would develop into greater and greater measures of holiness or likeness, we might say from a new testament perspective and, and and that is something that so many times our minds deceive us about i talk to you know people on occasion to christians at times and, and i'll even hear people say something in regards to justifying some sin or some wrong behavior well, well I, I understand but but i think god wants me to be happy Listen, I understand the joy of the Lord is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. I think God wants us to experience joy. The truth of the matter is, is if you're in disobedience to God, you don't have the joy of the Lord anyway. Because if you truly know the Lord and you're in disobedience to God, when you lay your head down on the pillow at night, you're miserable. You're miserable because you're ridden with guilt and regret. Again, a backslidden, truly born again backslidden Christian is the most miserable person on the planet because it has been said before. So, well, you have too much of Jesus to really enjoy the world anymore and, and you've got too much of the world going on in your life to really enjoy Jesus and your relationship with him. So you're like being pulled in two different directions and you're miserable there's not genuine happiness in that anyway. But so many times there's this subtle decision. Well, well, God wants me to be happy. And and listen, God's not primarily concerned. I don't think there's anything wrong with God bringing a sense of happiness in the midst of things into our lives. But God's primary agenda is our holiness. And when we are truly living holy lives, there is a sense of joy and peace and a authentic, wholesome happiness that comes from that oh how happy the bible says is the man whose trespasses whose sins are forgiven and the book of leviticus shows us very clearly as you see some of the things you're doing i don't know i don't know what god's asking me to do there in in that offering and that wouldn't make me too happy to want to do that because but listen god's concerned about holiness he's a holy god and so we worship and we approach him on his prescribed way. And in that, we truly find our purpose and our relationship with him. The book of Leviticus is an important, important book. Many a times, it's one of those books in the Old Testament we want to skirt around or maybe we don't want to read as a Christian. We think, well, that's going to be dull or drab. You know, I actually discovered something quite interesting even in you know my preparations this week. Uh, young Jewish Children, this is actually the first book... That they are required to study scripturally. That's pretty interesting. The first book that they are required to study from the Old Testament scriptures, Jewish, young Jewish children, is the book of Leviticus. It's an important book. It is a book, quite honestly, that when we understand it, gives us insights and understandings to many other passages of scripture why God responds the way he does sometimes and understanding why things are happening among the children of Israel and how these things apply then in the New Testament and Jesus' fulfillment of these things and, and connecting the dots certainly with, like, for example, the book of Hebrews. If you want a good companion read, maybe for your devotional time as we're studying the book of Leviticus, the book of Hebrews is a great companion book to read together with the book of Leviticus. It is a Old Testament book that is quoted over 100 times in the new testament that the spirit of god and the new testament writers found it essential enough that over a hundred times it's either directly quoted or alluded to in the new testament scriptures the setting historically as we left exodus and come into the book of leviticus is remember israel has just finished constructing the tabernacle They've now raised and set up the tabernacle structure. And we saw last time that when they finished doing that, remember, it says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The presence of God enveloped uh, the tabernacle area. And really from the end of Exodus, that point we stopped at last week, and to the beginning of Numbers, the next book that we'll get to in our Old Testament study, there's a bout you can look at chronologically about a 30-day period where the children of Israel kind of remain at Sinai after they set up the tabernacle, they remain there at Mount Sinai for about a one month or so time period before then we'll see in the book of Numbers they actually sort of begin their journeyings and their wanderings around the wilderness. So the book of Leviticus kind of has about a 30-day setting where now that everything has been set up and established, God now gives direction to Moses who then conveys that to the priests and the people regarding sort of the instruction manual of how they were to worship how they were to perform their sacrifices and their offerings in approaching God so look with me there in verse 1 it begins by saying now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting saying now take notice in our study in the book of Exodus God was speaking to Moses from where? from Mount Sinai But now that the tabernacle has been set up, this place of worship, this designated spot where God would have his presence dwell among his people, it's always the heart of God to dwell in the midst of his people. That's why Jesus said, even such in a small and formal way, whenever even two or three gather in my name, I'm there in the midst. That he graces the presence, the small meeting of even two or three people who get together in the name of Jesus. Jesus says, I show up and I'm in the midst. And now... God had been speaking to Moses in Mount Sinai, and then he would then convey things to the people. Remember, they were terrified when they had once heard the voice of the Lord. But now we notice there's sort of a change. God's presence is among the people now. And verse 1 now tells us that the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him now, not from Sinai, but from the tabernacle of meeting. God's presence is among them and he's now speaking to them, interestingly enough, and speaking to Moses from the place that was the house of worship. And I can't help but to think what a beautiful picture that is, that God spoke to Moses from the tabernacle of meeting, from the place of worship that God designated them to gather and to experience their worship of God. It was from that place that God speaks to Moses. And I don't think God has changed very much. I think that when we assemble together and Jesus is in our midst, I think many times that is the place from where I know myself, how many times that is where I hear the voice of the Lord. Speaking to me, giving me instruction, many times confirming to me what he's been saying to me in my private time alone and just reinforcing again things that he wants for me to hear. So the Lord now is going to speak to Moses and give instructions regarding how they were to worship and do their offerings. Verse 2 says, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord... You shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. So God's going to begin to give to them now. We'll see in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 different types of offerings that were prescribed that they were to utilize in their worship of God. Uh, He'll speak of, we'll see next in verse 3 there, the burnt offering. Chapter 2 will speak to us of the grain offering offering. There's also a drink offering that we don't find here in Leviticus in our section here. It's described in the book of Numbers. When we get to chapter 3, we'll see the peace offering and then the sin offering and the trespass offering. So these five different types of offerings will be described. And the animals that were able to be utilized in the giving of these offerings and sacrifices unto God. And of course as we look at these offerings and these different things certainly we realize that many of these things they were literal acts of worship the way God prescribed to be approached but as these people probably didn't quite recognize in the way that we do on the other side of the cross so many of these things prefigured and pointed to aspects of Jesus. And the ultimate sacrifice that he would make as the Lamb of God. Remember when John saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul says in Corinthians that Christ is our Passover. So we know that so many of these things, as we looked at in the Old Testament, they they point to Jesus. And we'll uh, certainly try and uh, indicate some of them when we see them. But interestingly here, as they're now going to give these instructions... Uh, to the people it says whether when they brought animals notice they weren't to go out and just get wild animals from the field it says that they were to bring animals from notice among their livestock of the herd and among their own flocks so i believe like you know five or so different types of animals there will be the ox or the bull There'll be the the lamb or the sheep. There'll be birds that can be utilized, the turtle dove or the pigeon. But these were all domesticated or domestic animals that were among their own herds and were among their own flocks. And they were to take not outside animals, but those animals which were right from among them to use for their sacrifices. Now, I can't help but to see in that what a beautiful analogy that even is of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he has made for us because Jesus the Bible tells us came and the word became flesh and dwelt among us He came to his own, but his own received him not. And in the same way, they weren't to just take any animal. They were to take animals from among them, from right among them, the sacrifice was made. Jesus came, God in human flesh, and he was among us. And he dwelt in a body of flesh just like us, and the ultimate sacrifice came from right among us as Jesus became that lamb of God sacrificed for our sins. Again, you can understand as they would take from among their own flocks and herds, it also indicates there was personal cost to their worship. You weren't, if you wanted to worship, just, okay, well, we want to make an offering so. Uh, you know, send Billy Bob out in the field with the you know bow and arrow and see if he can bring in a bullock. No, they were taking from among their own herds, their own possessions, their own flocks. So this worship, when they gave it to God, it had a personal cost to it. Remember, ultimately David would say at the threshing floor of, Ar- of Aruna when he wanted to make an offering to the Lord, and he said, "David, just take whatever you want." The flocks, the herds, the wood, the you, you fire, you can have whatever you want. And David said, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And here, from among their own herds, their own animals, their livestock, which was a costly thing for them, it was from those things they were to bring their offerings to the Lord. And I think it's a beautiful reminder because, you know what, there should be, I really believe there should be a measure of cost in our worship. I mean, isn't the Lord worthy of some cost from our lives to worship? Whether it's the cost of our time, whether it's the cost of our energy, our efforts to say, you know, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice this or give up that because worshiping God's important and he's worthy of my worship. So if I have to make a little sacrifice or or, or bear a little personal cost to be able to go and to worship God or to give God my worship, I'm willing to do that. I think certainly that should be a a motivation of our hearts. It's a beautiful example of how they were to worship as they were to take these animals. And verse 3, God says, if, so again, this didn't seem to be a required, but a voluntary offering, we'll see, the burnt offering. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement. Verse five, and he shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests, Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. Everybody's stomach doing okay so far? All right. I got a weak stomach, so if I get queasy up. Yeah. I realize what's going on. Verse seven, the sons of Aaron and the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. And then the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn, notice these two words, burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the first offering that the Bible gives us instruction here in chapter one is what's called the burnt offering or the burnt sacrifice. And it was a willing offering. It wasn't like the sin offering or trespass offering that you had to bring to make atonement for your sin. It was a willing offering that you could bring to God And basically, if you were to summarize, it was in essence like an offering of dedication. It was an offering of consecration that you wanted your entire life to be devoted or dedicated to God. It was a way of worshiping God, giving an offering to say, God, just like this animal is completely consumed. You'll notice the burnt offering, unlike some of the other offerings. It tells us, if you notice down in verse nine, that they were to burn all of it. The entire thing, the entire animal was consumed on the altar. Every part of it was burnt up and consumed. Some of the other offerings, a portion would be given to the priest. A portion would be uh, eaten of and partaken of by the worshiper, like the fellowship or peace offering where your idea is you're having communion and fellowship with God. But the burnt offering, the entire thing was just consumed on the altar. And it was a picture in many ways of saying, God, this is what I want with my life. I want to offer my life to you. I want my entire life to be consumed by you and your purposes. I want complete dedication. Lord, I don't want to hold any part back. I don't want any part for me and I don't want anyone else to have any other part. I want you to have it all. I put the whole thing on the altar. And it was a beautiful way of being able to come to God in worship and in many ways the burnt offering is a picture of uh, really as well the, the dedication of the life of Christ. That Jesus in the burnt offering is pictured in that the entire life of Christ was completely dedicated to the will of God. Interesting as we read these terms, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the instructions for this offering, but the Bible says in Ephesians 5.2 that Christ has loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. This burnt offering is a perfect picture of the life of Jesus who in many ways, like a burnt offering, was completely dedicated to God. There was no part of the life of Christ that was not given over completely to the will of God to be consumed with fulfilling the Father's plan and the Father's will. His life was fully dedicated to God. And it's a reminder, really, of how our lives ought to be lived as well, that we ought to live our lives in complete dedication God to god as well like romans 12 one says i beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of god that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to god which is your reasonable service the bible says but this burnt offering is it's described here in chapter one it could be offered in a few different ways depending upon what it seems your financial status was if you could afford an ox Or a bull, referenced in verse 5, you were to give that. We'll see as we get down to verse 10 that if you couldn't afford that, then you could give a sheep or a goat in the same way. And if you were too poor for that as well, uh, you weren't excluded. You could then offer a turtle dove or a pigeon. But but let's look at kind of what's described here in regards to it. It says, verse 3, the burnt offering, if you were to bring it, notice it was to be a male without blemish. And you were to offer of your own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. So again, we, we certainly, as we've said before, begin to see the pictures very clearly there. It was to be offered a male without blemish. There could be no defects or no blemishes in it. In other words, when you came to worship God, and we'll see this repeatedly, you could not offer to God your cast-offs. You, know, you could not offer to God, well, hey, you know, this animal looks like it's probably on its last leg, so you know we might why don't we just bring that one down to the house of god let's let's offer that to god because it's kind of falling apart anyway we're going to get a new ox and we'll give god this one and and so many times tragically this becomes the propensity in our lives in our worship when god says "No, no no i i don't want your leftovers i don't want your castoffs i want your absolute best i want your absolute best and why again First of all, just because God is simply worthy of that, is he not, truly? But also because more than that, it foreshadowed Jesus. Jesus was the Lamb of God, Peter says. His blood that redeemed us, he was the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. So the animal could not have blemishes because it was to be inspected that the priest would not find anything, and then it was accepted as an offering and worship. In their sacrifice, because ultimately it pictured Jesus who without sin, he had no spot, no blemish, no inherent sin or, or, or no committed sin. Jesus ultimately was the perfect sacrifice as his life became that burnt offering. So it pictures his life, but it also just simply, as I said, indicated a principle that God wanted their best. And you know what? Can I encourage you as a fellow of worship in the Lord that, that by the grace of God, we would grow in the area of giving God our best, giving God our absolute best of our energy, of our efforts, of our talent, of our time, of our resources, that, that we wouldn't just give God what's left over, but that we would give God top priority in our lives, that we would give worship top priority in our lives. Can I encourage you? not to be someone as a Christian who, who, who builds a life and then finds out where you can fit worship of God into it, but instead that you would build your life around the worship of God. That you would say, my top priority is to give the Lord my best. So my number one priority to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and let all the other things be added unto me, I'm going to give God my absolute best. I'm going to give them the first of my time, the first of my energies, the first of my efforts. And, and, and when there's time for other things, then they'll find and they'll fit in around the centrality of worship and devotion and dedication to God. If we were very, very honest, quite honestly, that is not the way that many so-called worshippers and followers of God live their lives. Most often, more than not, we build a life, and when we have time, we fit God in. If I have time, I'll read my Bible. If I have time, I'll pray. If I have time, I'll go and worship the Lord. But, you know, and it's amazing that as we live that way, it is phenomenal how we do have time you know, to, to exercise four hours a week, you know, to, to do this hobby every Tuesday or, or that thing every Thursday. And it's amazing how we can be so—is it not— we can be so dedicated and so devoted and we make time. Why? Because that's what we worship. In essence, that's what we worship. So we're devoted to that altar and and we give devotion and attention to that and we give it our best. And then when we have a little bit, and if we have time, then we fit God in. We need to have an inversion of our mentality to understand the worthiness and the value of god and when you look at this prescribed worship you'll see again and again god says no i don't want your leftovers your blemished i want your best this is a great example of what genuine worship that god wants and truly he truly deserves as well we see it laid out throughout the book of leviticus especially in these first few chapters so bring that male without a blemish and offer it notice of his own free will again It was to be given voluntarily. It was to be done, not by compulsion, but because the worshiper said, God, you're worthy of it. You're worthy of this. I understand who you are. And so, Lord, I want to dedicate my life to you. I want to give to you what you rightfully deserve. It was to come from their own free will, not because they're pressured, not because, gosh, the pastor just made me feel guilty saying those things. So, no, no, (laughs) if it's not of your free will, then don't do it. Do it because the Spirit of God's motivating you because you have a revelation of who God is, and you say because of who He is, I see, and and therefore, I, I, like Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. I recognize these things. I want to respond in that way. So they were to bring it freely, and notice verse four. They were to put their hand then on the animal on the offering, and it would be accepted on their behalf to make atonement for him. So what they were doing, and, and we'll see this repeatedly, is they put their hand, the Hebrew literally is a little stronger, says put his hand on, the Hebrew literally indicates to lean with weight upon. And the picture there, as we see in the Old Testament, is two things, identification and transference. That is, they put their hand on the animal as the sacrifice, as a substitute, they were identifying with that substitute that was going to die in their place. And it was an issue of transference. Many times they would confess their sins over that animal. And then that animal would be sacrificed as their substitute. And the idea when you put your hand upon it. it was a very personal way of, of identifying with that sacrifice. And saying I'm transferring my guilt. I confess these things. God I've made these mistakes. And I deserve the punishment. But instead that innocent substitute instead would be sacrificed and would take the punishment for their guilt for their shortcomings for their mistakes so they put their hand on the animal and it says and then it shall be accepted to make atonement for him which is a term we'll see again and again that refers to just a temporary covering and appeasing of the wrath of God because of the sinfulness of humanity in the midst of his holy presence and then verse 5 look at this many of us don't like to see this And he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And then the priests and Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around the altar by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And verse six, and he shall also skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. So take note, it was the requirement of the worshiper to actually kill the sacrifice here in the burnt offering the priest would hold a golden bowl underneath the area where its throat was slit to gather the blood and to then go and properly disperse of the blood but verse 5 says that it is the worshiper who was actually the executioner now you may look at oh my goodness i mean that just that's so intense but i'll tell you this if you brought that animal down there it was costly you had to take it from your own herd and listen an ox in that day please understand an ox was like a tractor man it was like giving it was like giving your tractor over it was not if you had an ox that you were doing pretty well and then if you could afford to spare an ox that was really an incredible offering that was a costly costly thing to give an ox from your herd so it was costly it was personal and you put your hand on it and then you actually there was a particular you know artery near the neck where they would slit and then you I mean talk about your senses being engaged as you listened to the groan of that animal and the blood beginning to spurt out and the smell and the sense and the quivering animal as it became weaker and weaker and then watched it fall. And I tell you this, that would leave an impression on people. As a worshiper, that was a powerful, powerful impression upon you of, oh my goodness, this innocent animal had to die in my place. And I guarantee you this, it was very difficult to have a very trivial attitude about sin, because you realize this is what sin does. As you watched and you participated as the executioner of your own offering, it left a very, very strong impression stamped on your heart and on your mind in regards to what the realities of these things meant as they would have to do this. And then you actually had to prepare the animal itself. And verse 7 says, The sons of Aaron the priest shall put the fire on the altar and lay the wood, and then they would just gather the different parts Lay it upon the altar. Wash its entrails and legs with water. And the priest again shall burn all the all the animal on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire. And notice it was a sweet aroma to the Lord. Again, they have a sweet aroma there. We'll see that again and again. The idea is it was like a pleasing fragrance. There was something about it that was it was a pleasing fragrance to God. And and why? Because when God sees a selfish sinful human heart like ours come to the place where in a personal way when he knows there is cost and sacrifice involved and we are willing to humble ourselves in his presence and say god i want to give it all to you god take it all take all of me lord i'm tired of holding things back lord i'm tired of making excuses lord you are worthy of everything and all i have i'll tell you something that's a sweet fragrance in the nostrils of the lord It's a pleasing thing to him because he knows how selfish I am. He understands how sinful I am. So when he sees us with that type of an attitude as the worshiper would come, it was a pleasing and satisfying thing to the Lord. Now, if you could not afford an ox, it seems that the wealthy would be much more able to do that. Then you could also give a burnt offering among the flocks that was a sheep or a goat, which was much easier to afford if you couldn't afford uh, to bring an ox. Again, you weren't excluded. You could bring also a sheep or a goat as a burnt offering. As a sacrifice, verse 10, and bring it again as a male without blemish. Again, much of the same instructions reiterated here. And verse 11, you shall kill it. Now, here's a little interesting side note that's put in as well. We don't get this from verses 1 through 9. Here, notice, he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord and the priest. And Aaron's son shall sprinkle the blood "...all around and cut it into pieces, its head, its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is upon the fire on the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn on the altar." Again, it's a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Two things here to take note of. Not only could you also offer a sheep or a goat here if you couldn't afford the ox... God didn't want anyone to be hindered from being able to worship. But we read here in verse 11 that they were to kill it on the north side. Now that's interesting because when you look geographically on a map of the area specifically where Jesus was crucified, guess where it was? It was on the north side. So again, we look at that and our minds just pass over it as a trivial detail but from God's perspective... God, who from all of eternity saw the ultimate sacrifice of His Son, gives this instruction, and every time it happened, see, this is what to understand, every time it happened, God's heart was being stirred. One day, my son, one day, just like that animal, my son will be slaughtered, and he'll die, and he'll give his whole life in complete dedication, because human beings fail and falter, but my son will be faithful, the end and he'll be completely dedicated to the will of god and my son will say father not what i will but your will be done and he right there right on the north side will die ultimately and be the ultimate sacrifice it's interesting we've noticed a few times as well verse 13 alludes how they also were to not only take out the entrails or the internal parts of the animal but it says they were to wash them with water wash the legs with water now again, why does God want that? Well, again, as we're going to talk about many times. It's just what God prescribed. I don't know if we can say we fully understand why did God prescribe all these things other than he's God. He can make his own terms. He's God. It's good that we learn to accept that as we look at this again and we think about jesus here's this bloody monstrosity of an animal that's been butchered and no doubt it's been bled out but there's blood dripping off of it and running down the entrails and the legs and then to wash it with water and then guess what you got then you got an animal and the flesh of an animal that now is dripping with what blood and water And that should remind us of something, because remember, when Jesus was on the cross, it says they pierced him in his side and out flowed what? Blood and water issued from his side. So again, no doubt in these things, there's something, this sweet aroma to the Lord. Again, you have to understand, there's something eternal that's been settled in the heart of the Father that resonates as he watches these things. Now, verse 14 through 17 then again reiterate the same only telling if you could not afford those things again if you were very poor and impoverished you could also do a burnt sacrifice to the lord of birds again this would be if you were you know very underprivileged you just couldn't afford a sheep you didn't have a sheep or a goat uh, to give but you could then give an altering of a turtle dove or a young pigeon and the way to do that, in this situation, the priest would actually bring it to the altar and wring off its head, so you didn't have to kill this, the priest did it for you, and he burned burn it on the altar and the blood was drained out at the side of the altar, and he shall remove its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes, and they shall split all its wings, but they shall not divide it completely... And the priest shall burn it on the altar in the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So again, three different ways you could do this burnt offering. If you could ford an ox... You brought an ox or a bull. If you couldn't afford that, you could bring a sheep or a goat. Maybe you were middle class and that's all you could afford. But what if you were the poorest of the poor in the land of Israel? Well, God said, you can still approach. God didn't want anyone to be excluded. They could also bring a turtle dove or young pigeons. Now, that should be an interesting and an insightful thing to tell us something historically and biblically accurate about Jesus. Because you remember when Jesus' parents went up to the temple... It tells us that when they made an offering to the Lord, that they offered turtle doves, which indicates that Joseph and Mary obviously were probably among the poorer class in the society of Israel. Again, contrary to the whole health and wealth gospel, and if you have Jesus, you should be rich. And je- listen, Jesus said, "Foxes have holes, birds of the air have, you know, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head." Jesus came from a very simple, common, lower class family in Israel in that day, and I think part of the design of that was because God wanted Jesus to be approachable. And that everyone felt that they could feel comfortable coming to Jesus. And here, I like to see how God sets this out in chapter 1, that you could bring different types of animals, depending upon what you could afford, because it shows me two things. It shows me, first of all, that no one was excluded from being able to worship God. It didn't matter who you were. God wanted to make sure that no one would be excluded. Anybody could come and worship God. Anybody could dedicate their life to God. And at the same time, not only did God make sure nobody was excluded, but God also did this. He removed everybody's excuses. Whether you were rich, whether you were middle class, or whether you were down and out in some of the poorest in the society, God said none of those excuses matter. None, the excuse well I have too much and too much to maintain God says that's no excuse your life should still be dedicated to me well, says, well I don't have anything I have nothing to offer I just have very little and God says "That that's no excuse anybody all the classes of society weren't excluded and they had no excuses God made a way for all of them to approach and to be able to give to him that same worship and experience him. Chapter 2, we'll just kind of look through it together briefly, is a description of the grain offering. And this sort of seems to be a supplemental offering. Uh, We're not 100% sure of commentators of what the actual purpose was of the grain offering, as we can kind of see from some of the other ones. Um, It seemed that it was often given in connection with blood offerings. The grain offering was also combined, it seems, as a supplement to peace offerings and burnt offerings. Uh, but as we think of the grain offering, grain certainly is a picture of the fruit of man's labors. So maybe in some way God is picturing here giving an offering unto God of the fruit of your labors that God doesn't want just, you know, our life to be, well, this is my worship life, but then all my secular aspects of what I do every day. No, God says no, I want everything to be sanctified to me. And as you bring your grain and your fruits, that was a part of your work and your your daily habits. And it was something that could be given unto the Lord as well. So when anyone offers a grain offering to the Lord, his offering shall be a fine flour. So this was one way you could offer it, just by bringing a handful uh, of, of actual flour itself, fine grain. And he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Again, many times when we see oil in the Bible, it's symbolic of what? The Holy Spirit. And frankincense, that sweet-smelling fragrance, and incense, again, we talked about incense, as many times symbolic of prayer. So, if the grain offering is sort of a symbolic way of saying, "God, I want to dedicate to you my labors, my efforts," God says, "Well, that's great, but I want your labors and your efforts. Whether you're an auto mechanic, or you're a farmer, or you're a doctor, or a nurse, or a teacher, or a mom, or whatever," God says, "I want, I want the the fruit of your labors. If you want to give them to me and dedicate to me those to me as well, then God says, then I want mixed in that." oil and incense in other words god says i want you to be a spirit filled and a prayerful mechanic i want you to be a spirit filled and an anointed teacher and a prayerful teacher in the school system and and god says look whatever you do it's it's not secular and spiritual no i want spirit filled anointed Praying workers in the fields of the harvest all around, and God says, "I want that in everything, not just well hey i'm it's spiritual when I go worship God at church, but then the other six or seven days a week that I'm doing what I'm doing, it's kind of disconnected. no God said that is just as much an offering to me if you let me use it and you do it as unto me again, the New Testament tells us how we're to work unto the Lord." giving glory to him in everything that we do. Verse two, he says, you shall bring it to Aaron and his sons, the priests, one of whom shall take from it his handful of the fine flour and oil with all the frankincense. And the priest shall burn it as a memorial on the altar an offering made by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord. So it seems that the grain offering in some way was also a part of what sort of the compensation Uh, would be in some form of Aaron and his sons, the priests. Remember, they didn't get an inheritance of land like the other tribes of Israel did. So God made other ways to prescribe that they'd be compensated and cared for. And the grain offering, it seems a part of it, was to be uh, given to the priests. They were to take a portion of it for themselves. Verse 3 says, "...the rest of the grain offering, again, shall be Aaron and his sons. It's most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire." Now in the next few verses, God gives again, like with the burnt sacrifice, a few different ways you could bring your grain offering. You could just bring a handful of ground grain and and flour, or, verse 4, you could bring an offering as a grain offering, baked grain. In the oven. So if you like to bake cakes, then God says, okay, then bake me a cake. You could could bring an unleavened cake of fine flour if you wanted to bake it, but again, God said, mix it with oil, and it shall be unleavened wafers, again, anointed with oil. Or verse 5 But if your offering is a grain offering baked in a pan, it shall be of fine flour, unleavened, mixed with oil. Again, you could also bake it, it seems like in a flat pan kind of the idea there is something that would be like a flat uh tortilla or something just kind of like a pancake type style so you could bring that to God as a way of bringing your uh offering to the lord i'm sure the priest actually probably liked that a little better I, I, <laughs> i'm sure they probably enjoyed eating a little pancake or tortilla rather than just a mouthful of you know grain just chewing on that for a little bit as they got a portion of the grain offering Verse 6, you shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it, for it is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering baked with a covered pan, you shall, it shall be made of flour with oil. And you shall bring, verse 8, the grain offering that's made of these things to the Lord. Again, notice all these things brought to the Lord. It might have been brought to the house of God, but always important to remember it was for the God of the house. And it's so important that we remember that again, that we don't just start going through the motions of worship and offering, but we, Lord, no, I'm, I'm not just singing because we're singing songs. I'm singing to the Lord. Not just, hey, well, this is what we do. We get together and it's like the, you know, the pep rally of the church. We all get together and we all sing the same song like we're singing the national anthem or something. No, I'm, I'm singing to the Lord. Because if you're singing to the Lord, then you have a reason to sing and you want to sing and you don't care what you sound like. You just want to sing to him. You want to honor him. You want to use the words to express your gratitude. So again, when they brought these offerings, God wanted it. You see again and again, you can go through, underline, note the phrases, before the Lord, to the Lord. There was something that was given... To him, it was to be a personal thing. You shall bring that grain offering to the Lord. And when it's presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. Verse 9, the priest shall take from the grain offering a memorial portion and burn it on the altar. It was an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what is left of the grain offering then shall be Aaron and his sons. It is most holy of the offerings to the Lord made by fire. Verse 11 it says no grain offering which you bring to the Lord shall be made with notice leaven for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in an offering to the Lord made by fire now interesting God inserts this instruction again. His prerogative, he's God, he says, when you give me a grain offering, two things are prohibitions. He says, in the grain offering, if you're going to bring it in some baked form, whatever, he says, it shall be made without leaven, and it also, notice, could not possess any honey within it. Now, that's interesting. Again, when we look at leaven in the Bible, so often leaven in the Scripture, even Jesus alludes to it ultimately, is a type and a picture of sin, Leaven is that which corrupts. It causes the bread to rise because of really a permeating and a putrefication process. So it's a picture of that which corrupts in a sense. It's a picture of sin. And God says, look, in the midst of your worship, I don't want anything in it. I don't want anything corrupt in it. I don't want anything impure in it. Again, when we approach the Lord, when I approach God in worship, I want to come before him with clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. The psalmist says, if I, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord won't hear me. I want to come before the Lord having cast out the leaven in my life, you know, maybe to confess to the Lord things that I need to get right before I enter into worship so it's not a, hair, a barrier and an indigence. Lord, I need to, I, There's been a little bit of leaven in my life recently. There's been a little bit of leaven in my attitude or what I said or did earlier. And, and Lord, just would you cleanse me, forgive me of that. I don't want any of that in, in between what you and I are going to experience. And interesting as well, they were to mix no honey with it. Now, what's honey? It honey's a sweetener. It's sort of an artificial way to make something that's not, not sweet taste a little bit better. And, and, and here, in a sense, you find the Lord saying, look, I don't want you to try and sweeten things up in any artificial way. Now, I know as worshipers, we never do anything artificial when we worship, right? We never try and sweeten it up a little bit when really our heart's here, our attitude's there, and and yet we we know how to just kind of sweeten it up and we're kind of a little artificial and ingenuine. What's God saying? God's saying, when you worship, I don't want want anything ingenuine. I want you to be genuine. I want you to be authentic. God wants sincere, authentic worshipers. Remember, Jesus rebuked uh, the people of Israel in his day, grabbing from Isaiah's words, and he said, These people draw near to me, what? With their lips, and yet their heart is far from me. What was he saying? Your worship, it's not genuine. You're very insincere in what you're doing. God wants sincerity. He doesn't want anything corrupt within us, and he doesn't want anything that is disingenuous and artificial. He just wants sincerity. Be sincere in your worship to God. Pour out your heart, but be genuine and never let anything artificial or insincere, begin to pollute your worship. Verse 12 is the offering, it says, of the first fruits, offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet aroma, and every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. Again, salt was a preservative. You shall allow the salt of the covenant of your God, and many times we see salt used in the the mixture of offerings to god but god here calls it the salt of the covenant of your god be lacking from your grain offering with all your offerings you shall offer salt again salt being a preservative and interesting the salt of the covenant of your god Salt was a preservative and and maybe God was trying to remind them of that reality in the same way salt preserved things from rotting and from failing. God says the salt of the covenant of your God. Maybe God was trying to say, look, and when you're worshiping, mix a little salt into that so that you remember that I will preserve my word. I will preserve my promises and my promises will never fail or corrupt or fade. Other things can, but you always have a reason to worship because I will preserve my promises for you. I'll keep my word. I'll preserve my promise. My covenant will be kept with you. Verse 14, he says, you shall offer a grain offering of your first fruits. Again, notice their first fruits. The idea is acknowledging God. You're going to bring that which comes afterwards, but they were to bring the first of their of their produce or whatever to the Lord as an act of faith and thankfulness. Lord, you are our provision. We believe you're going to continue to provide. So we bring the first fruits of our crop to you. You shall offer the grain offering of your first fruits of green heads of grain roasted on the fire. So that was kind of like roasted kernels here. They would bring the early stages of their uh, crop as it first started to come in, beaten from the full heads. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn the memorial portion of its beaten grain and part of its oil with the frankincense as an offering made by fire to the Lord. So, you know, We begin to look at some of these offerings here, some of these types of sacrifices. Again, they are prescribed ways to approach God in worship. And as I said before, you know, look, don't get bogged down in some of the details. I know some of these things, we read them, it's old covenant stuff, and we think, man, well, that doesn't pertain to you know, where we're at today. But please don't miss the overriding point and emphasis that God was to be approached in a prescribed way. God had a way in which he was to be worshipped. And I would encourage you, read John chapter 4, verse 20 to 24, where Jesus says, The Father is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, Jesus was saying there is a prescribed way to approach God. We approach God on his terms, not our terms. We approach God through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and life. We approach God on his terms through the faith of the finished work of the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we approach God by faith and and accepting the grace of God. And we worship God in the way that he wants to be worshiped and in what he receives as worship. Again, we sing to God. Why? Because it's just what makes church a little less boring? No, no. Because the Bible commands us sing unto the Lord. (laughs) Sing unto the Lord. Well, I don't like to sing. Well, then you don't like to worship God. Well, I sound dumb when I sing. I'm too embarrassed. Well, then you're embarrassed to worship God. We worship God the way God says to worship Him. So whether it's through our songs, whether it is through our service, whether it's through the offering of our finances and resources, there are so many different ways the Bible indicates that we can genuinely worship the Lord, but we must approach Him in the way He says we can approach Him, and we must offer Him our worship in the way that He wants to receive worship because He's God. Amen?